Hey, good to have you with us this weekend. If I haven't had a chance to ever meet you, I'm Dan, and I'm one of the pastors here. And love the fact you're kind of tuning in. Uh, uh, we love seeing some of you coming back. It's kind of been fun to kind of get things going. We're in the middle of this conversation. If you kind of tuned in last week, you know uh, Pastor Jonathan uh, thanked me for giving him the topic of sex last week, right? And uh, and I want to say you're welcome, right? Uh, I told him this. I said, you don't have to worry about people paying attention, right? Last week, Pastor JC talked about sex. And uh, next week, Pastor Aiden's going to talk about the end times. And those kind of things are kind of hot topics. I get the chance to talk to you about the mundane in the middle, right? But uh, we have some really, really important things that we need to talk about today. We're in a conversation, right? If you have a Bible, go to 1 Thessalonians, lay that in your lap, get a notepad, take some notes as you're getting set up. Let's just say this, this conversation we're having is based off of a letter that Paul wrote to a very young church. And he's writing it to a very young church in a town. He founded the church and he actually got run out of that town because he was preaching Jesus. But he's very proud of this church. He's very thankful for the church. It's a model church. He says, man, the, 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 the message of Jesus rings out from you. That's like something really good to be said about you, right, as a church. And so he's writing to them. And he has some things he wants to talk to them about. He's like, you're doing great. Love it. And then he wants them to continue to grow. And we've been looking at this. We're in chapter four today. Uh, we were last week. We are today. Here's what I want to do before we dig in. I'm going to do just a little section of scripture today, but let's zoom out before we zoom in. And if we zoom out, what I want you to see is chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, how it starts and how it ends, because what sandwiches this passage helps us understand it. Uh, Look with me at chapter 4, go verse 1. Here's what it says. Paul says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order, here we go, to please God as in fact you're living. Paul here, he's urging them to live to please God. Here's what I want you to write down somewhere on your notes. That's worship. That's worship. Worship is the follower of Jesus responding to all that God is, says, and does. All of us are worshipers, whether you follow Jesus or not. The follower of Jesus worships God, and they respond to all that he says all that he is, and all that he does. The good news of God is what we call the gospel. We respond to God because of all that we receive from him in the gospel. It's not the other way around. A lot of people get this mixed up. You don't try to please God so that he'll be okay with you. But what the deal is, you worship God because of what you receive is a free gift of grace in the gospel. Uh, It's important. A lot of us get this mixed up. Uh, Some of you are like followers of Christ, and this whole idea of surrender is weird to you. I was just talking to somebody, it's like weird to you, like surrender. Uh, when, When a Christian or a Christ follower talks about surrendering their life to God, they're not talking about... Uh, this blind obedience to these random rules in a book that were somehow made in a vacuum. Surrendering my life to God is always attached to a relationship. And it's surrendering to a God who loves me more than I dreamed and knows and wants what's best for me. In fact, he died to secure that. Forgiveness of sin, part of his family, right? It's worship. So 1 Thessalonians 4 starts with, hey, here's what it means to worship. Here's how to live to please God. But look how it ends. Go to verse 12. He says this, so that your daily life might win the respect of outsiders. Uh, Write this word down. That's witness. Here's what I want you to know. Your worship to God and your witness 
to outsiders are connected. When you live to please God, responding to all that he is, says, and does, it makes the gospel attractive, gains the respect at minimum of people who don't even believe what you believe. I dare say this, and some of you are in this boat, many today who reject Christianity, and some of you, that's where you're at, you're like, I reject it, are actually rejecting what they see portrayed in the life of so-called Christians many times. And they're not necessarily rejecting the true good news message of Christianity. Uh, I used to have this little poem, it was on my office, and it said something like this. It might be worth slowing this down and writing this down. You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, distorted or true. What's the gospel according to you? That's an interesting little poem, right? Yeah, it's worth writing down. And, and, and it reminds me of what I think Paul wants them to see. So here's what he says. He says there's five things that he addresses. Depending on how you read this, it could be three things with two modifiers. I'm, let's go with five today. Five things that are an act of worship to God and a witness to outsiders. What does it mean to worship God and how to gain the respect of outsiders? Five things he mentions chapter four. Now, JC, Pastor Jonathan, he started with the first one last week, right? He started with, he did a fabulous job. If, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, you need to get on and listen to it when you're done here, right? Uh, one thing I can tell you this, I will never, ever eat popcorn at Pastor Jonathan's house, ever. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, get online and check it out. But here's what he says, first thing that is an act of worship to God and is also a witness to outsiders is for the follower of Christ, a sanctified sex life. <laughs> there you go. That's what he talked about last week. It's not a rule that I keep, but it's a response to God and my relationship with God. My body is his temple. My body as a follower of Christ is his temple. Not because he randomly claims it and I'm hostage, but Jesus died to purchase my freedom. And so my body is a set-apart vehicle for his purposes. I need to avoid anything that would defile what he wants to be set apart. Let's say it this way. You can go on and check out the sermon. Sex is reserved for a monogamous covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. Any sexual activity outside of that is a perversion of his set-apart purpose and desire for the follower of Christ. That's what he's saying. But he ain't done, right? That's Pastor Jonathan talked about that, right? He didn't have to get you to pay attention. He talked about sex last week. He didn't have to get you to pay attention. But now I'm going to talk about verses 9 through 12. And, and these verses make me think of something Mark Twain said. Mark Twain said, said this. It's just interesting. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. He said, rather, it's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. And I think that what we're going to see in verses 9 through 12 are some straightforward, small little statements. They're pithy, but they are power-packed. And they outline for us what it means to live to please God, worship God, in a way that is a witness to outsiders. Look what it says. Let's look at it. Look at verse 9. Here's what he says. Now, he's talking to the church about your love for one another. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. In fact, you do all, uh, you love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, I want you to do this more and more. 
If you want to know what pleases God is an act of worship to him as well as a witness to outsiders, here's the first thing. Let's just stop there and say, here's the first thing. It is a unique love for each other. Now, I know, I know, blah, blah, right? You expect, right? We talk about that. But, but, but there's something that we got to get a hold of here. There's this unique love. He urges them to love each other more and more. It's always growing. It's unique. It's different. What is it? Okay, ready? What is it that makes this love unique? Well, let's do this. Get your pen ready. Let's develop a sentence right from the passage we just read. Let's not even go outside of it. Let's just develop it from the passage we read. What makes the love that Christ followers have for each other unique? The first thing is found in this. He says, about your love for one another. Now, some of your versions say that. It's okay. It's good. But uh, it's unfortunate because what they're trying to do is translate a Greek word. You can forget this, but you might recognize Philadelphus. Maybe you recognize that, Philadelphia, right? It's, it's two Greek words smashed together. It means brotherly love. Uh, I think the first thing he wants us to know about this unique love is it's a family love. We talked about this two weeks ago. Go online and check it out. But there is a family love. The church is a family. Write that down somewhere. <laughs> the church is a family. When you say yes to, to Jesus, you don't attend church. You no longer go to church. Uh, you, listen, listen, I'm going to say this. You can't just do church online. Like, I'm glad we do this. You can take part in this, but you can't do. When you say yes to Jesus, you belong to a church that is a family. That's what he's trying to say. The local church is a local community, and it's an expression of the family of God. And it's not, it's not easy to quit a family, right? Now, there's this special laugh when we laugh, cry when we cry kind of love that shows up in thick and thin. Families have weird uncles, crazy aunts, right? Uh, people who smell funny and have different opinions, but they family. That's what happens. Some of you don't have a family. You've been checking us out online, and you live here locally, and I want to encourage you, why don't you come be a part of the family? We want you to come be a part of the family. Others of you are watching this from other places where it's like coming. I'm encouraging you, find a local expression of the family of God. I had a lady <clears throat> this last week. Um, it, it just so touched my heart. She was at the doctor's office and she got this life-altering diagnosis. She got a life-altering diagnosis. Like, boom, the doctor said here, you know, her day changed. And she came here right after being there. And I asked her, why, why was this your first stop? She said, this is my family. <laughs> this is my family. It's a family love. But look what he says next. He says, you yourselves have been taught by who? By who? God to love each other. It's a love that's learned, but not in a classroom. But, but, but I'd write it down this way. It's a family love that's taught by God. What does that mean? We love each other in, in a way that we are taught by God. How does God teach us? Well, he tells us over and over in the Bible he loves us. But can we just say this? God teaches us love by showing us that love. This unique family love is taught to us by God, and it's a matter of nature and nurture. Here's what I mean. We'll, we'll throw these on the screen. 1 John 4. Look, just look at this with me. This is interesting. Dear friends... Let us love one another, for love comes from who? Yep, God. 
Everyone who loves has been born of God, knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because what? God is what? God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son in the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Down verse 19, he says, we love, why? Because he what? First loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. He says that those two things are incompatible. We love each other, right? How we have been loved by God. We love because he first loved us. That's what he's saying. We extend what we experience. That's what he's saying. The only way for us to be a part of the family of God is to receive his sacrificial love. Think about it. Just think about this. The kind of love that the follower of Christ, that, that Christians are to have for each other, is not a feel-good, flippant, love you kind of love. Right? But the kind of love that Christians have for each other is this show-up kind of love, this roll-up-your-sleeves kind of love, this get-involved kind of love. It's a consistent, constant, kind, patient, serving, sacrificial, generous, giving, leveraging my life for the sake of others kind of love that looks like who? Yeah, you said it, Jesus. In fact, Jesus said this to his followers. He said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as what? I have what? Loved you. Now you love each other. That's hard to do in just one hour a week, right? There's, there's like something family going on here. Your love for one another will prove to the world you're my disciples. Like, that's a big tag. He's like, you want to show the world that you're following Jesus? Here's how it shows up. Not bumper stickers that you have on your car. They're great, awesome, all these kind of cool. The t-shirts you wear, great, awesome. The flags you wear, the signs you put in your yard. Okay, nothing wrong with that, right? right? You, you, you know, the billboards, you get, all of that. He says, you want, you, you want people to know? It's your love for each other. He goes on, he says, you do all, look at this, look back at 1 Thessalonians, he says, you do love all of God's family. Circle the word all of God's family throughout Macedonia. This tells me something about this unique kind of love. It's not a pick and choose kind of love. Can we just say this, it's easy to love people, who are lovely, <laughs> they're love, come on, right? Don't judge me, you're the same as me. I, 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 it's easy to love people that are lovely and lovable and even likable, right? But, but it's not so easy to love people who aren't easy to love. <laughs> Let, let's keep writing our sentence out. It's a family love taught by God, God, God that's all-inclusive. <laughs> I read this somewhere, it said this, uh, to dwell above, with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But, but the next part says this, but to dwell below with saints we know, that's another story. <laughs> There's some truth to that, right? I mean, I love people who are lovable, who love me back. I love people who are likable and like me back. But what he's saying is this. He's saying not everybody's lovable. Not everybody's likable. Not everybody's gonna love you back, which is why he says, we urge you, see what he says, Brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. 
listen, listen. You will never graduate from learning to love. You'll never like, I've arrived, right? I, I can't go any further in the class of love. <laughs> like you'll never graduate from learning to love, which finishes our sentence out. And then I want to teach you something. <clears throat> this unique love that Christ followers have for each other, look at this. It's a family love. <clears throat> it's taught by God, nurtured nature, all-inclusive, includes even people that aren't easy to love, and it's ever-increasing. Let me ask you a question. You ever wonder, like he said, I want you to grow in this love more and more. You ever wonder how God develops this ever-increasing love in your life? Get real with me for a second. Let's quit preaching and let's just talk for a second. You ever wonder how that happens? You know how it happens. You know there's no way you're ever going to grow in that kind of love unless you're, you got people around you who aren't all that easy to love. You want to grow in this kind of gospel-centered love that looks like Jesus? Guess what? You can almost count on it. There's going to be people. Some of you are married to those people. <laughs> Don't look at them. <laughs> you know, but you're married to them. Some of you got a kid like that. Some of you live beside them. Some of you, they're in your extended family. Some of you work around them. Some, I mean, right? And the fact of the matter is I want you to grow more and more. And here's what I can tell you. This ever-increasing growth in loving happens as I encounter people that aren't that easy to love. I don't get stronger unless I put more weight on. You see what I'm saying? I like to think of it this way. How, do I, how does this kind of love extend? I like to think of it this way. I think I have a picture here of a, a kid in a swing. I want you to remember this. You know, it's like teaching a kid to swing. I've got two grandkids now, and, and one, uh, my oldest, Corbin, he's getting the age where, you know, he's kind of into this kind of stuff. And for a kid, you have to learn how to work your legs, don't you? Because when you sit, you want to stretch your legs out, and, like, you just hope you can go further, right? But it's not until you bend your legs back and then push your legs out. And I think that's what it means to love more and more. The more I lean into God's love for me, the more I'm able to extend God's love to others. Now listen, listen, listen. I will help some of you see people in your life different. That person in your life who's hard to love, some of you are trying to love them and all you're trying to do is extend your feet. And maybe God put them in your life. You ready? This is going to blow your mind. Maybe they're in your life because God wants to remind you, not of how hard they are to love, but maybe God wants to remind you of the extent he went to love you. And maybe the more you realize how big his love is for you, and it's probably bigger than you think, like we all like to think, well, I'm so lovable, wouldn't God love me? The extent to which a holy God went to love me, a sinner, the more I lean into that, the more I'm able to extend to people who aren't all that lovable, maybe, <laughs> likable. Here's what he's saying, guys. He's saying act of worship that kind of is an act of witness is this unique family love. That when people from the outside see what's going on in the church, they see people who love each other uniquely. 
and they see people swinging on this swing. They're growing and they're understanding God's love and they're extending it. There's something else he says here. This is interesting to me. Verse 11. He says, And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. <laughs> you want to know what pleases God and wins the respect of outsiders? Write this down and let's just try to tease it out. It's an ambition. It's an ambition to lead a quiet life. Bet you didn't see that coming, did you? It is, it, what does he mean? Like, like that word, quiet life, it just means rest, to be at peace, unhurried, settled, still. Uh, maybe the best way for us to uh, maybe kind of get underneath of this is to ask ourselves some questions. And maybe it'll help us know whether or not we're living a quiet life. Maybe here's the first question. Go ahead and ask yourself this. Am I internally settled? For some of us, the biggest noise in our life is inside of us. It's the constant noise of worry, the drumbeat of anxiety. We are a restless bunch. And we're not quiet. We don't lead a quiet life because there's so much noise inside of us. What's the antidote to that? Well, Philippians 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? Lord's near, presence of Jesus. Don't be anxious, the noise inside of you about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then what? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's saying this, that the answer to being unsettled inside is to practice the presence of Jesus through prayer. I mean, you, you know that, right? Like he's saying, that's an act of worship to recognize the presence of Jesus, but it's also a witness to outsiders. I've told this story here at the Norton campus uh, maybe a couple times, but when I was a kid, I was deathly afraid of storms. Deathly afraid. Lived in Pennsylvania. You could see him coming over the mountain, lightning. You could hear the rumbles of thunder. And I would do the same thing every time the storms come. They would create internally, I'd be unsettled. And so what I would do when they got closer, I would run downstairs, whether my dad was awake or sleeping, and I would stand beside his bed. I wanted to be in his presence, and I would ride the storm out because there was something about the presence of my father that calmed what was unsettled in me. See, here's the deal. The lack of peace in many of our lives is due to the lack of prayer because prayer is me running downstairs or maybe upstairs, whatever the case may be, and literally getting in the presence of Jesus saying, you're here, you're right here with me in the middle of the storm. You tracking? Maybe I gotta ask, am I internally unsettled? Uh, here's another one. You ready? I need to ask myself, am I socially peaceful? I just, just go ahead. You don't even have to agree with me on this, okay? Just let this stir a little bit. But I think it's interesting and even odd that in many segments of our society, people have associated evangelical Christians as mad, opinionated, angry, gun-toting revolutionaries when, when, when we follow a meek, humble, foot-washing, turn-the-other-cheek king who changed the world by giving up his life for those very people who took it from him. 
Somewhere along the way, I wonder if we've given up the power of a quiet life. And somewhere along the way, I wonder if we've joined the drowning noise of a culture that's belligerent, demeaning, sarcastic, loud, and demanding. And somewhere we've ceased being quiet and embraced being obnoxious. Uh, Paul said this to a young pastor. He says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever's good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate, and always gentle toward everyone. I just would say this, that our willingness to submit to each other and even people in authority in Scripture is many times connected to our worship. What I mean is this, in Ephesians 5, he says, I want you to submit to one another out of reverence, out of your worship to Christ. It's just interesting. He says, uh, I want you to live a quiet life. Make it your, literally it says this, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. I, I maybe I ask myself this question, am I materially content? You know, it causes a lot of noise in some of us as we're discontent. We need more. We need different. We need bigger. We need better. Right? We get in the rat race of more, acquire better, the constant noise to upgrade. Uh, here's what Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, uh, I'm not saying any of this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances. There's this quiet contentment. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Uh, guys, isn't, isn't there something, there's a quiet contentment that we all long for? Quiet contentment is this act of worship and is an effective witness. You know how somebody, you can tell somebody is enjoying a quiet contentment? They're thankful for what they have. They're not always talking about what they don't have. You, you know, there's, there's another quality. They're good stewards with what they have. And they're generous with what they have. I remember being in Argentina. I, I, I can remember the, the, the person that stood out to me the most, the person in our whole time there that was the most generous to us, was the poorest person we went to visit. She was a mom with kids everywhere in, in, a, in a house that wasn't much bigger than a room in our church here. She had hardly anything. And yet I don't know that I encountered anybody there that was more thankful for what she had and that was more generous with what she had. And I'm like, it was like an act of worship, this quiet contentment. And I'm going to tell you something. It won the attention of others. Like there's something our world longs for in that. This unhurried, this simple life. Maybe there's another question. He says, make it your ambition to, to lead a quiet life. I need to ask, am I spiritually attentive? Sometimes there's so much noise and our life is so fast-paced, getting the kids here, doing this, gotta, that, that we can run right past the voice of God. Can I say it this way? Sometimes we spend so much time trying to make a name for ourselves or our kids 
that we never take the time to listen to the one who has the name that's above all other names. Uh, Psalm 46, some of you heard this passage, says, I want you to be still, right? He says, be still and know that I'm God. There's something to, to, to be heard in the stillness, the quietness. The se- like, let me ask you a question. What do you do to quiet your life and to listen? Paul says this, act of worship to God, witness to others, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Can I just say this counterintuitive 21st century American culture? Fast-paced, hurried, get more. He says, make it, th- make it this your, your ambition. Become zealous about le- leading a quiet life. Are you zealous to lead a quiet life that's settled, practicing the presence of God, that's peaceable, that is somehow content with a quietness, listening to the voice of God in your life? He he doesn't end there. He he says this. He says, oh, and you should mind your own business. (laughs) This is Paul's way of saying, mind your own beeswax. You ever say that when you're a kid, right? Uh, He's like, mind your own business. I'd write it down this way. Act of worship to God and, and a witness outsiders is the wisdom to mind your own business. This was a problem in Thessalonica. Um, the problem was that there were people who didn't mind their own business, and so they were ready, busy bodies, right? The word means to meddle in other people's business, to be somebody who's uselessly focused on trivial matters. That's interesting, right? That's a busy body. Uh, Here's the way 2 Thessalonians says it. It says, Paul's talking to the same people. He says, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, Instead, they're busy bodies. This is the person who knows all the community gossip, all the workplace drama, and the one who has to comment on everything. You, you know, don't I mean, don't look at them. But you know anybody like that? <laughs> uh, I read this somewhere. Facebook. Now I'm not against social media, but Facebook is like having nosy neighbors who don't really like you. They just stay connected to look over your wall and see what you're doing. It's interesting, right? I think the point is this. I don't need to proudly flesh this out. You get the point, right? He's like, you do well. If you're minding the business that you're tending to, that you need to tend to, you're not going to have the time to give attention to all the stuff that's not your business. I read this. A pastor said that somebody taught him this um, young in his ministry, and I love it. Write this down somewhere. Put it on a wall. Put it beside your computer. Here's what it says. Uh, Somebody told him this, feel free, ready? Feel free to have no opinion about that. Here's what he's saying. I don't have to have an opinion about everything and I don't need to post an opinion about everything. Yeah, I I don't have to have an opinion about everything and I don't have to post about everybody's business. It's always interesting to me when there's local news where there's this juicy bit going on, and, and it's happened even right here in our own community. It breaks my heart because there's people's lives involved. And, and if you get on Facebook and you begin, it, feel, it feels like people who don't have all the facts and who aren't in a position to determine those facts feel a freedom to go in and comment on, right? That's being a what? Busy body. And I've talked to people, I've talked to people who have been the target of those comments. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you, that's hurtful. 
And I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something. It, what Paul is saying is, as an act of worship to God, he's saying, mind your business. You got business. And, and, and when you're minding everybody else's business, you're probably not minding yours. And, and he said, it not only is an act of worship to God, but it gains respect of outsiders. Because all of a sudden, the outsiders are, are watching this. People who don't even follow Jesus, like, oh, wow, if they'll do that to them, they'll do it to me, and they'll do it to whatever, right? Then Paul says this. <clears throat> He says, then I want you to work with your hands, just as we told you. Um, I, I think what he's saying is this, that an act of worship to God and a witness to outsiders, it, it, it simply shows up this way, a different approach to my work. Paul's <laughs> addressing specifically an issue here. Uh, people had quit working. They, they were so mesmerized with the coming of Jesus, right, that, that Pastor Aiden's going to talk to us about next week. They were so mad that they just stopped working. Like, oh, Jesus kind of kind of quit. In fact, you can see in his second letter, look what he says. He says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus, settle down, earn the food they eat. He's telling them, get to work. He, he's saying, get to work. If you're able to work, you ought to work is what he's saying. Now, that's very relevant for our, our culture right now, right? I talk to all kinds of business owners, and like, we can't find people to work. And, and, and I, I'm saying this with love and compassion, what, what, but with conviction. If you're a Christ follower that's watching, and you're unwilling to work, but you're able to work, Paul is saying it's an act of worship to God. You need to know something. You were created to work. I, he, honestly, here's where I think we get off track. I really do think. The problem is many of us see work as a necessary evil. Or, or at minimum, we see it as, a, as somehow uh, a means to an end. Like it's, it's a paycheck or it's a way for me to make a name for myself or whatever it is. Paul wants us to know that, that he's like, work... You were made to work. It's an act of worship to God. In fact, in another um, passage that Paul's writing, Ephesians, uh, he says this in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8. He says, slaves, now let me stop here, because uh, a lot of people are like, what is that? Slaves here are not the same as slavery in 1800s in America. You just need to know that. Slavery was not permanent. Slaves had rights, the, the, who's talking to. It wasn't based on race. This is a different deal. It's kind of, think employer, employees, kind of something like that. He says, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. He's like, I want you to work in that way. Obey them not only to win their favor and their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do whether they're slave or free. He says your work is worship. You don't just do it so your boss, your earthly boss can see you and recognize you, but if you're a follower of Christ, your work has a different purpose because you have a different audience. Your boss, your Lord, is always watching you and he's the one who redeemed you and he did work for you on the cross so that you could be a new creation. Listen, listen. 
If my work is my worship, write that down somewhere, my work is my worship, it means certain things. If I'm able to work, I should work. So if you're a follower of Christ and you're able to work and you refuse to work, right? Paul's saying this, you were created to work. It's an act of worship. It recognizes that you were made to work. But it also means this, if my work is my worship, then I'm always going to give my best. This will change the way some of you work. I'm not going to go just put in my time, but I'm going to go work and I'm going to see my work as working for the Lord. Our bosses as followers of Christ ought to be able to trust us when he's there and when he's not there that we're going to give our best effort. Why? Because the one that we really follow is always there. That's what he's saying. And then in an almost shocking manner, he in Ephesians 6, he addresses masters or bosses. And he says, I want you to treat slaves this in a certain way. He says, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them since you know that he is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. Here's what he's saying. He says, there's different roles when it comes to work, but not different classes in work. Uh, what he's saying is we live in a society that wants to classify people by their job function where they, where they fit on the ladder. And God says if you're a Christ follower, whether you're cleaning toilets or, or running a company, you have the same master. That's what he's saying. And your work is worship. And he's saying some of you are bosses and, and lean in. He said your work is your worship. And he says use your authority for your employees' benefit. Why? Because God did. He's saying, slaves, I want you, those who work for bosses, I want you to be willing to give your loyalty and excellence to your employer because you're serving God. But there's something else this means. My work is my worship. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to leverage my life for the sake of others. It means there's no distinction between secular and sacred work. That's what it means. Some of you need to hear this. Work is, is how I tie Sunday to Monday. Let me change your thinking this way. Some of you think when you go to a service at the gathering of the church, you're like, I'm going to worship. Here's what I double dog dare you to do. I double dog dare you. Monday morning, when you get up, I want you to look at your wife or your husband or whoever, and I want you to say, as you head off to work, I'm heading off to worship today. That'll change. That'll totally change the way you begin to see your work. And what Paul is saying is that, that when you begin to see your work as your worship, it becomes your witness. And all of a sudden, it gains the respect of outsiders, and you're not dependent on anybody. I found this quote by a lady named Dorothy Sayers. I love it. She says this, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and come to church on Sundays. Listen to this. What the church should be telling him is this, that the first, very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. I love that. 
what's she saying? When I recognize that my work is my worship and it's also my witness, it'll change the way I approach my work. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying this. You want to know what pleases God is an act of worship to him and is a demonstration or a witness to outsiders? Here it is. Those who are following Jesus will embrace a different sexual ethic. They will have this unique love for each other, a family love taught by God that's all-inclusive, ever-increasing. They'll make it their ambition to lead a quiet, settled, peaceful, content, listening life. Minding their own business, because they have enough to care for, all the while approaching their work differently. You see, here's the deal. Our culture is desperately looking for the difference the gospel makes. And that's what Paul's addressing. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to uniquely love each other as we've been loved. To, with ambition, live peacefully and peaceably at peace because we're practicing your presence, listening to your voice. And that you would help us to mind our own business there's enough to tend to and know when it's not our business to state our opinion. But God, I pray tomorrow morning or Monday morning or whenever it is, when we go to work, you would help us to see we're heading to worship. And I pray that as we work and worship, that the people that we work with would see the difference the gospel makes in our life whether we're driving a bus, whether we're a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, whether we're working in a factory, whether we're working out in the field, whether we're taking care of children, whatever it is, God, I pray that they would see the difference the gospel makes in us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.